Ladies, gentlemen, and everyone in between, welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. Please subscribe to us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Leave us a review. Five stars only. Okay, Richard is off this episode, so I went at it alone. We have a heavy hitter today, folks. It's perhaps the most requested guest that we've had, and that would be Dr. Vincent Samar. Uh, I've several times mentioned him by name on the podcast and advocated heavily for his class in jurisprudence. And he came on the show today and was gracious enough to present a new paper that he's about to have published. So the format's going to be a little bit different, but it will be equally enjoyable. So without further ado, give it up for the great and powerful Vincent Smart. So I'm sitting here with Professor Vincent Samar. He is perhaps the most requested guest that we've had on the show, and uh, he is going to be discussing a new paper that will be published in February in the Catholic University Law Review. So the format of this episode is going to be a tiny bit different. He's going to start with about a 20-minute presentation, and then we will go into a Q&A, and we'll see where the discussion goes. Professor Samar. Thank you very much. All right, take it away. In Obergefell versus Hodges, the same-sex marriage case, Justice Kennedy, writing for the majority, suggested that due process and equal protection are interconnected such that the one may inform the other in particular cases. Two prior cases had suggested an overlap with each expanding the range of protected interest. Previous to those and at times after, it was thought that the two theories were quite distinct. However, even with these changing understandings, there is reason to question whether any trend toward expansion of rights will continue into the future. Let's begin with a bit, brief bit of history. In a now famous 1988 Law Review article, Professor Cass Sunstein offers one view of due process and equal protection. The former was followed in Washington versus Glucksburg, the assisted suicide case, and the Second Amendment cases, but, the latter, but later repudiated in Obergefell. Sunstein wrote, from its inception, the due process has, clause has been interpreted largely, though not exclusively, to protect traditional practices against short-run departures. The clause has therefore been associated with a particular conception of judicial review, one that sees courts as safeguards against novel developments brought about by temporary majorities who are insufficiently sensitive to the claims of history. The Equal Protection Clause, by contrast, has been understood as an attempt to protect disadvantaged groups from discriminatory practices, however deeply ingrained and long-standing. The Due Process Clause looks backwards. It is highly relevant to a due process issue, whether an, is an existing or time-honored convention described at the appropriate level of generality is violated by the practice under attack. By contrast, the Equal Protection Clause looks forward serving to invalidate practices that were widespread at the time of its ratification and were expected to endure. The two clauses therefore operate along different tracks. Now two prior Supreme Court cases had suggested an overlap with very different approaches triggering equal protection. In Filer versus Doe in 1982, undocumented Mexican children residing in the state of Texas sought to re enjoin the Tyler Independent School District 
from exclusion from the public schools following the Texas legislature's decision to withhold public funds for the education of children who could not show they were legally in the United States. The issue before the court was whether consistent with the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, Texas may deny to undocumented school-aged children the free public education that it provides to children who are citizens of the United States or legally admitted aliens. In deciding the case, the court seemed to apply heightened scrutiny by noting that any denial must be justified by a showing that it furthers some substantial state interest. To justify its decision, since undocumented school children would not normally be a suspect class, the court noted that more is involved in this case than the abstract question whether this law discriminates against a suspect class or whether education is a fundamental right. The latter qualification was necessary because the court expressed no interest in reversing its earlier due process decision in San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez holding that public education is not a right granted by two individuals by the Constitution. In other words, neither fundamental rights analysis by itself, nor being a member of a suspect class by itself, was the determinant for how this case would be decided. Instead, the determinant seemed to, at least in this case, to be the effect the law would have on innocent children. Along the way to its decision, the court per Justice Brennan noted certain salient facts. The law in question imposes a lifetime hardship on a discrete class of children, not accountable for their disability status. The stigma of illiteracy will mark them for the rest of their lives. By denying these children a basic education, we deny them the ability to live within the structure of our civic institutions and foreclose any realistic possibility that they will contribute in even the smallest way to the progress of our nation. Writing separately, Justice Blackman added that classifications involving the complete denial of education are in a sense unique, for they strike at the heart of equal protection values involving the state in the creation of permanent class distinctions. Still, such a new understanding of the 14th Amendment in which due process and equal protection both contributed, gave rise to the dissent to suggest that by patching together bits and pieces of what might be termed quasi-suspect class and quasi-fundamental rights analysis, the court spins out a theory custom-tailored to the facts of these cases. The second case worth our attention is Sabake versus Red Hell, 1978. In that case, a Wisconsin statute prevented marriage by persons under court order to pay child support unless such residents first prove compliance with their child support obligation. In holding that statutory classification violated equal protection, the court per Justice Marshall stated, when a statutory classification significantly interferes with the exercise of a fundamental right, which the court was reaffirming marriage to be, it cannot be upheld unless it is supported by sufficiently important state interest and is closely tailored to effectuate only those interests. Not finding such a class justification, if merely behind in child support payments, the court then struck down the statute, but interestingly not as a violation of due process. Instead, the court struck it down as a claimed violation of equal protection clause. Apparently, violation of a fundamental right could now, just by itself, constitute an equal protection violation. But why? 
Perhaps the court thought this was necessary given the noncompliance for child support was hardly a recognized suspect or quasi-suspect classification. Nevertheless, the majority opinion would cause Justice Powell in his concurrence to argue that because the right to marry could be regulated and traditionally had been, it was only just the breadth of the statute requirements that violated due process, implying that equal protection was not doing any work. It is against this background now that Justice Kennedy's language in Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015 should be evaluated. Kennedy writes, the due process clause and the equal protection clause are connected in a profound way, though they set forth independent principles. Rights implicit in liberty and rights secured by equal protection may rest on different precepts and are not always coextensive. Yet in some instances, each may be instructive as to the meaning and reach of the other. In any particular case, one clause may be thought to capture the essence of the right in a more accurate and comprehensive way, even as the two clauses may converge in the identification and definition of the right. The interrelation of the two principles furthers our understanding of what freedom is and must become. Now, was Kennedy suggesting that in some cases the court needs to investigate the way a right is defined or how it operates, as equality concerns may arise at any of these separate points. What more precisely should we make of his statement that each clause may be instructive as to the meaning and reach of the other? Kennedy does not say. Additionally, Professor Mark Strasser fears, given that the court had previously recognized the right to marry is fundamental, what could it mean that the court in Obergefell leaves open whether the due process analysis holding the interest in same-sex marriage is fundamental is in some way dependent upon the finding that equal protection guarantees had been violated? Wasn't the question before the court whether the fundamental interest in marriage included the right to marry someone of the same sex? Professor Strasser worries that a future less sympathetic court might be able to use Justice Kennedy's language either to refrain from further expansion of the set of liberty interests it is willing to protect or to back off raising the level of scrutiny for groups invoking less than fundamental liberty interest. This provides very little direction for lower courts deciding cases, let alone much assurance to the public that existing rights will continue intact. Still, what is clear from both of these clauses is the amendments focus on the person and what persons may be deprived of or denied. This suggests a possible avenue for resolving any conflict that may arise from the apparent need to trigger heightened protection under both due process and equal protection in order to get protection. The 14th Amendment does not start from the premise, I'm sorry, does start from the premise that nor shall any state deprive any person of liberty, very similar to the wording of the Fifth Amendment. The philosopher H.L.A. Hart has said, if there are any moral rights at all which the 14th Amendment can be seen as, it follows that there is at least one natural right, the equal right of all men to be free. Both the Fifth and 14th Amendments acknowledge this background right by saying liberty cannot be removed without due process of law. Still, if any doubt were to remain, surely it is put to rest by the existence of both the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, which clearly recognize the enumeration of certain rights 
shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So on the assumption that there is this background right to liberty, how should conflicts of rights get decided? One way to decide the matter, at least where a fundamental right is involved, is to inquire whether the state has a compelling interest. This may get a bit sticky if the state's compelling interest appears merely to stay, take sides in the so-called culture wars. Still, both, because both interests, if they are to be taken as fundamental, are likely to be founded upon a common de deontological grounding in autonomy, and thus what serves to maximize autonomy may provide the needed basis for conflict resolution. Here I have in mind that both interests operate in common service to individuals being able to fulfill their various ambitions, desires, and worthiest capacities, and therefore both may find the condition of their resolution not so much in history and tradition, but in what actually serves human self-fulfillment. But how should this notion of human self-fulfillment be exemplified to help resolve a conflict of rights? Obviously, personhood must be understood both individually and collectively to include both liberty of the individual but also equal treatment of all those similarly situated. Due process in the sense relevant here is substantive in that it discovers specific rights people might be thought to have. Equal protection follows thereon to prevent descriptions of the rights that on their face would prevent, absent adequate justification, a fair distribution of the liberty all are entitled to. What is of significance for the discussion here is how the collective sense of persons as moral agents might aid the resolution of conflicts between due process and equal protection, especially in figuring out when two cases are alike or which interests should dominate. Let me begin with some thoughts from the philosopher Alan Goerth regarding how moral agency operates to identify normal adult human beings as voluntary actors who act for purposes of their own. Such choices presuppose the person is both free to act and has the capacity to make and carry out at least some purposes. The freedom to act accords with purposiveness as the latter comprises the object or goal of the action in the sense of the good the agent wants to achieve or have through his causation. Thus, freedom to choose where one's physical, mental, or economic abilities prevent carrying out the choice would not be much of a freedom at all. This suggests that physical, mental, and economic well-being are essential to any choice that one might make. Goerth's argument further shows that any agent from within her own point of view cannot rationally just claim rights to freedom and well-being for herself but must also at the same time recognize that other similarly situated agents could rationally claim these same rights. And this is a key point in 14th Amendment equal protection jurisprudence, which treats similarly situated persons alike. Additionally, basic liberty interests, especially those that human beings are most inclined to identify with as a basis for their self-fulfillment, such as life, personal autonomy, and privacy, should be deemed fundamental for all agents, particularly so when those interests could not otherwise be accommodated or only accommodated by alternative means at great effort and expense. This is especially true on the liberty side, where liberty right might be so defined, as in the case of marriage, to deny access to the same right or to what fundamentally makes it of value. Consequently, 
embedded in the idea of a liberty right is the idea that denying its general applicability without a strong justification would deny its access to other agents and thereby make it not much of a liberty at all. The other place Gewirtz's system provides some assistance is where he describes resolving conflicts and rights involving different levels of well-being, prevention or removal of transactional inconsistency when one person or a group attempts to use its rights to deny those of another is an obvious case. Important also is where a trade-off is being offered between denying a lesser good of well-being, like being made to feel uncomfortable, to offset a greater good, like affording the possibility of a self-fulfilled life. Obviously, in the case of basic well-being, this latter basic good must almost always trump non-subtractive or additive well-being goods. Similarly, non-subtractive well-being goods will often trump additive well-being goods, although there may be occasions where small amounts of non-subtractive well-being are overcome by great improvements in making available additive well-being goods, such as by taxing all citizens, regardless of whether they have children, to support public education. Here the point is not utilitarian, but Kantian, as shown in John Rawls' difference principle of ensuring service to the least advantage who might be otherwise be left out of the question of equality. And just the point on non-subtractive well-being, that means being reduced in your level of purpose fulfillment, whereas additive well-being is how it might be enhanced, like through education, a decent standard of living, and a good health care. All of this goes to show how the interconnection of freedom and well-being can provide a framework in which due process and equal protection concerns can be reasonably reconciled. The two considerations need not be posited as necessarily operating against one another, but instead as operating together to ensure the equal standing of all persons to achieve maximal self-fulfillment. This is the collective sense of personhood sought after as necessary to resolve conflict of rights, and its recognition is where I believe a philosophical engagement is helpful. <clears throat> Obviously, the factors of rational personhood and aspiration that Gworth discusses support the safeguards that equal protection affords. Such safeguards include, beyond affording some rational basis for protecting additive goods, applying strict scrutiny for any denial of a fundamental right which are likely to include the basic liberties of life, personal autonomy, and privacy, as well as strict or heightened scrutiny when the government classifies a group based on race or ethnicity, gender or legitimacy, or sexual orientation, as such classifications are highly likely, based on past history and experience, to be discriminatory. This also suggests that our current classificatory scheme is only a starting point given how biases that may have gone previously unrecognized become discovered through increased social awareness. As such, courts need a greater fluidity in the setting and resetting of determinations of scrutiny, as aspects of social life not previously thought to be biased are now brought into public scrutiny. The constitutional protections of due process and equal protection need assist here to protect against unwarranted widespread biases the breadth of which will likely prevent correction by the normal political processes. But what should be the criteria for determining whether an interest is fundamental? In Filer versus Dole, 
the court stayed committed to the idea that public education is not a right granted to individuals by the Constitution. Perhaps this should now be rethought, given how important access to educational opportunities are for advancing individual well-being and full participation in a free society. Although similar in its holding, how the court went about its work in Filer was opposite to the way it went about it in Obergefell and Loving, where it extracted from the definition of marriage limitations that made it less than generally accessible. In Filer, the court imputed into education a degree of importance to reflect its effect on undocumented children whose petition to the political branches would likely go unheard. Either of these approaches will sometimes be necessary depending on the type of harm the court is being asked to consider. Where the liberty interest is fundamental, equal protection may operate to ensure the interest is made available to all. Such an interest is harmed when another fundamental right is treated as absolute. For example, allowing a baker of wedding cakes to refuse to make a cake for a same-sex wedding because it would violate the baker's sincerely held religious convictions is an example of where choosing to enter the wedding cake business must be accompanied by a commitment to serve the public as a whole if individual autonomy and personal self-fulfillment in any of a number of areas is not to be undercut. Here the point is that a business highly connected to cultural norms widely recognized to represent important milestones in a person's life must consider the effect any discrimination it promotes is likely to have on the people it is serving. The same would not be true if a clergy person refused to marry a same-sex couple but was told by the government she must do so. In that case, the fundamental right of free exercise of religion would override any claim of access because government is not complicit in the religious operation and in fact, under the First Amendment, is barred from being so involved. Bakers and priests are not similarly situated because while religion is highly personal in its self-fulfillment, Control over commerce is normally a government area of responsibility. Indeed, if the goal is to protect basic liberty in its fullest sense, as would seem to be required by both morality and personal autonomy, then instances where politics might be interfering with a basic liberty must be closely scrutinized to ensure that the interference is truly in service to the protection of maximal liberty. As it stands right now, Exactly how such future cases will get decided is not at all clear. Although the language in Obergefell and Filer, the latter because of the court's willingness to raise the level of scrutiny, suggests a direction of where the law should be going. That direction, if consistent with subsuming fundamental rights doctrine and equal protection analysis under a broader theory of the person, should expand the range of protected interest as it serves to clarify how the two doctrines might operate together. Within that frame of reference, the relationship between the two areas becomes clear as criteria begin to emerge for deciding future cases where the doctrines might intersect. Thanks for the opportunity to present this. It was my pleasure. So there's a lot there. Uh, I had forgotten how much of a formidable intellectual you are. So I'm going to ask some questions, and they may be eye-rollingly rudimentary, but it's for not only my benefit, but the benefit of the listeners who may not had the privilege of taking a philosophy class or a jurisprudence class. So let's jump in. I want to crystallize how you think that the due process clause and equal protection clause 
interact in a way. You had mentioned the masterpiece cake shop, and you drew the distinction between how a baker and a priest would be differently situated. Can you expand on that and why there might be two different outcomes for those cases? Sure. Um, A baker freely chooses to join the commercial market and to make his wares available to everyone. And if he's a baker of wedding cakes, it's fair to say that the government should not be complicit in allowing discrimination against a group of people the government is serving, in this case, same-sex couples. So the government can set standards that would require, under a public accommodation law, that the baker serve everybody alike. Now, if the baker, because of their own moral beliefs and religious beliefs, feels they can't do this, then they have the alternative of going and being part of a nonprofit rather than a for-profit organization connected to a religion, for example, and serve only people of like mind. In that case, the effect on the public generally would not be broad and would be on a particular area already identified within the nonprofit status. And as such, it is reasonable to think that the baker would be free to make whatever moral choices they choose. But if the baker goes into the public market, they should not be able to disservice someone, whether based on interracial marriage or a same-sex marriage, because they are already committing to be part of the public at large. And the state, insofar as it's providing the facilities, legal facilities of protecting their property rights and ability to do that, the contract rights and so on, should not be complicit in allowing them at the same time to discriminate against a part of the public. So that's part of how I see this, whereas the same thing, none of that would apply in the case of a priest or a clergy person who this, we've already established in the First Amendment, the state should have no involvement with pretty much. It should pretty much leave these people alone, uh, except where they start operating as a a business and where it becomes quasi-unclear whether they're really operating as a religion or as a business. But we can talk more about that if you so wish. Yeah, uh, I mean, so the issue is not as clear to me uh, as I think it might be to you. What the distinction, I mean, you you referenced uh, the protection of property rights and freedom of contract, but I would say that the priest and the baker similarly avail themselves of the privileges of the state law. And I'm also, as we discussed in the pre-show, more of a free market guy. And I, I, so this is where it gets sticky because obviously it offends notions of fairness and inequality to say that a baker should be free to not bake a cake for a same-sex couple or an interracial couple. I think that he should, as a moral stance, make the cake. But as a legal stance, I I don't see how, under what legal doctrine does the state get to reach in and force somebody to engage in some behavior that they find to be immoral simply because they're participating in what I would say the free market. And generally, I think that the market will correct for these problems. If, If this baker develops a reputation as a bigot, you would assume that people would not favor that baker and that somebody else would open a baker across the street that says all people welcome. He would be quickly put out of business. So isn't there sort of a self-correcting system in place already to fix some of these problems without the long arm of the government? Well, I think there are a couple of problems with that. First of all, the correction you're suggesting, should it actually occur, 
would probably occur over the long run. But in the short run, individuals would be denied access to a very important part of what marriage, in this case we're talking about same-sex marriage, mm -hmm. involves, which is the cultural aspects and which is what really equalizes them in the, in the public's mind because some part of the public, the government representing all of the public, has somehow made a, dis a distinction saying, well, if people want to discriminate against you, they can, just as if they want to discriminate against an interracial couple, they can. And I think the problem with that goes to this notion of personhood that I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. The idea that it's not just about maximizing liberty, which could mean in the, in the free market sense that you know, you can, you're free to get as much difference in wealth and control as you're capable of. It's about the collective sense of person, not just the individual sense of person, in which it's maximal liberty for all not maximizing liberty for one. And the maximal liberty for all will only occur if there is an equal protection limitation on, on the freedom one can have to gain power and control. And so this is where our government, which has great power, can be either on the side of maximizing liberty, and in their sense, indirectly on the, uh, going against maximal liberty, or on the side of maximal liberty for everyone. And I think a proper understanding of agency, human agency, and what morality requires that everybody be treated alike in terms of their freedom requires this collective sense of person in which government is not allowed to do that, but is barred actually from uh, those kind of activities. Government can make an adjustment here, recognizing the importance of freedom, and it can make that adjustment of, uh, in context of religion, by allowing a nonprofit situation where a person can still make you know, money as a salary, but we're serving in, a, in a, what is already described as a limited service to only a part of the public, but not a general service to the public as a whole. And in that case, I think that would be an alternative accommodation that works, more, that works better and is more fair, respective, respecting of the collective sense of person I've articulated. Mm. So, I mean, I think that's a, a good rejoinder. I, I still have a hard time getting over the fact. I mean, so let's talk about personhood a little bit because this is an idea that you brought up in other articles that I had the ability to scan. Um, and this idea of a collective personhood, I, I think that that's probably right. I think government has an interest in protecting personhood as a collective, us as a society. But I, I guess, so I suppose the question still remains, though, as to what's going to further the well-being of all persons as a collective. And I think that there's a, a sufficient argument to be made that, that the incidences of bias against potential customers will be discreet and that most people will not choose to not serve a same-sex couple. But to say that a baker who wants to provide a service has to enter into a nonprofit, I mean, that... that I know they could still take a salary, but they're not building equity in a business. I mean, there's other concerns there. Uh, so can't we disagree a little bit on what is going to further the collective sense of equality of personhood? Well, we could disagree, but I hate to think that you'd be wrong. Uh, <laughs> the problem here is what we mean by uh, government involvement uh, and whether the government is what is doing the harm or whether the individual is doing the harm. If the individual is just doing the harm and the harm is pretty narrow, 
then we might almost consider it de minimis. Mm -hmm. But it's the government doing the harm when the government puts the sanction of its laws and, its, and, its, and the rights that it recognizes behind a discriminatory aspect. It undercuts the very idea of collective personhood that you just admitted you agree with and that government should be respecting of. It undercuts that very idea at its core. Okay. I, I have another question. And, well, it's more of a, a theory of mine that I'm going to phrase as a question. And again, I think this will be an area where we disagree, but it, this would not be worth our time if we agreed on everything. So, Oh, it's I, fun to disagree. Yeah. No, I, I, I like that because it, my, with my students, it adds to the pedagogy. It gives a chance for more sides to be heard and arguments to be made. And the way to get at truth is not to be told what the truth is. The way to get at truth is to investigate and look very carefully at different kinds of arguments to try to assess what's really behind them and what really works and doesn't work both logically and to the extent that they are involved some kind of evidence evidentially. Mm. Yeah, so that here's something we do agree on, uh, that dialectic learning is, is the best type of learning. So my, my position on the whole marriage issue is that the government shouldn't even be in the industry of marriage. And I think that your argument for the Baker situation logically follows from the idea that there is a protected right a identifiable right that the government has an interest in in marriage, I I, th I don't believe that to be the case. I don't see why the government has any interest in marriage. I mean, the only justifiable one in years past was the industry of child rearing and uh, the family unit, and the government did a pretty bad job at that. So any claim to an interest in that, I think, is spurious at the moment. So I, I don't. I think that for a lot of religious people, even. If you get married, there's you get two certificates, one from the government and one from your church, and only the one from the church matters to a religious person. So in, in this case, I, I don't even know that the government should be in the industry of marriage. And, it, and then I think from that, it follows that individual contracts and transactions between people will guide what is going to build the best social fabric. I just have this top-down, I have this fear of top-down social engineering in a way. It, and I think that that is not an irrational concern. So I guess the question is... Should government be involved in the institution of marriage? Right? Yeah, or yeah. do you believe that government can change minds by fiat through laws or through policy? Well, that's a different question. Okay. Uh, so let's separate let's, those two. Yeah, because, let's uh, make it a two-part. And, and the, let me answer the, sec the, the, the latter question because it's the easier answer uh, first. Uh, government does, in fact, and society does by laws and policy change minds. That's just a fact uh, because it creates an environment in which people find that certain norms are expected. Now, they may, if they're analytical and critical, they may investigate those more norms and either come to agree or disagree with them, but certainly the very process of them doing that already suggests that government has changed minds because it puts something before them that they have to now take a look at. And that's just part of how society, as well as government, generally operates, and religion operates that way as well. Going back to your first question, it probably would have been the case that had government never, uh, all the way back to earlier times, been involved in marriage, that the issue would not be present here, that marriage would have been just a private matter, except in the sense that government became involved uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, there were early, back Roman days, property issues. Uh, there were among Jewish citizens uh, in the Jewish community, issues of love and affection and family caring and taking care of children, and today also about entitlements and things like that, all of which are 
often decided upon and adjusted for in light of the existence of the institution of marriage. So what has happened is there already is a structure and there may be some uh, efficiency aspects, since you like efficiency uh, uh, as a libertarian, mm -hmm. uh, aspects to government doing that and having a simple criterion like marriage as a basis for you know who gets certain kind of benefits and, and why. Uh, rather than have to investigate in each individual case whether there's a reason, this becomes an, a more simpler, cost-effective way of doing it. So given that the institution does exist, the question is how should it, as a legal institution, exist so as to achieve both liberty and quality? Uh, it may be of interest, uh, hypothetically, to wonder, well, if the institution didn't exist, would we have need to create it? or would we create maybe something else, something that previously was called civil unions, mm -hmm. and just leave the word marriage. But that just gets into uh, a, a, a word that can refer to different things. It can refer to a religious structure or it can refer to a secular structure. What we're really talking about here is the secular structure, right. uh, not the religious one. Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I, I my question was phrased as a counterfactual. I, I, obviously we can't turn back the hands of time. So the question is, Boots well, at least we can't yet yeah, until we can go faster than the speed of light or have uh, <laughs> a possible wormhole. But we'll put that aside for the time being. Um, I, I think I want to ask you, and this isn't something that I thought I was going to ask you, but uh, because we agree on disagreement in the classroom and how that's the best way to reach, quote unquote, truth or at least some semblance of knowledge. And I feel like that's something that's really lacking these days is that people feel afraid to disagree or that they feel like there's some sort of that they're going to say the wrong thing and that there's fear of being excised from their community, whether that be students or the school more broadly. Um, and I think that there's a lot of, of nervousness around, especially me as a more conservative libertarian, expressing views in my in the classroom, uh, that, hence why we started this podcast. You work in the humanities. Uh, you're very learned in the humanities. Have you seen it change over your career? And do you feel like it's moving more towards an ideology rather than an actual body of literature and knowledge. I mean, I, because there are a lot of kids that come out of undergrad these days who have studied humanities. It, they all speak with the same lingo and they all believe the same thing. And I think it's, it's really troubling. Okay, again, you have a lot in there. Uh, let me unpack it step by step. Uh, one of the things I do in my classroom is I tell my students, look, when it comes to asking a question or challenging something or it's saying what you think might be wrong or I even say what you said was not what's in the case or whatever is wrong, that's not a problem. That's actually a good thing mm -hmm. because probably somebody else is thinking that too or, mis or reading it that way and it gives me a chance pedagogically to investigate it and, and look at it and offer an al alternative reading that might be more uh, based on the language and, and the past history more uh, accurate. On the other hand, it may also be the case that what you're saying it raises a new question that maybe wasn't fully thought about or should be rethought, and maybe the full, the full explanation is not what I had in mind, but now also has to be thought about in terms of what you're offering here, all of which would only be possible if you take on the challenge, the risk, of setting forth a new idea. So it is never wrong to challenge something, to ask something, to uh, criticize something for or against, pro or con, uh, it's, you know, in an open way, in a respectful way, 
but nevertheless in a way that tries to get at some deeper truth because there's no reason to think at any point in time we have the final answer. We are always, as, as uh, Bertrand Russell points out when we're doing philosophy, investigating at least what at the moment appears to be the most accurate result, but there may be more to be had. We don't necessarily have the final answer. So that's the first thing uh, to say. Uh, in terms of students coming out with an ideology, I, that may or may not be true, and that may or may not reflect uh, not just classroom, but it may reflect background, upbringing, friends, and so on. And it may just reflect, to be honest, the fact that after they thought about it and really did engage in critical investigation, they weren't so certain with a, a set of views that they might have previously had, and they're more comfortable with another set of views. That may itself develop further over time, more so in the direction of perhaps liberalism or perhaps conservatism. Uh, but that will happen as they engage with the critical talents that, and, that we offer them and try to get them to engage with uh, and being open-minded to different ideas, including ones they don't necessarily agree with. That will only happen over that, in, that dialectic that they are willing to then continue on as they go forward in life. So hopefully what a good university education does is it creates that environment of critical thinking in which people don't just respond with a certain ideology or point of view, but actually are forced to question their own position. Not because they have to change it or don't not change it, but because any, any challenge that comes forward should have some kind of rational answer, and if it can't be answered immediately, should be thought about at least to see if there might be an answer down the way. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, I, I do think that there, there is a problem when we tie in academic inquiry with a sense of identity, and I, I feel like part of what, I think there, we need to have a return to fundamentals in the classroom because I think that people really integrate uh, what should just be pure inquisitive questions with a sense of identity and that you are a person who believes X or you're a person who believes Y. And it's less these days that you're actually trying to figure out if X is true or Y is true. And I, I don't know how we get back to what I would say is the original purpose of the university. I mean, even Socrates wrote that it's better in the university to debate and figure out what the idea of justice is than to go out and enact some half sense of justice. And I feel like that a lot of the uh, education, especially in more liberal-leaning institutions, focuses too much on the enactment or the activism. Do, do you see that at all? or do you? Well, I think one of the differences between philosophy and maybe some other areas, but I'm by no means saying that this is a problem in other areas, but certainly that philosophy, more so than some, doesn't start with any given doctrine. So unlike law, for example, where you have a set of doctrine out there, Supreme Court decisions in the past, statutes, uh, regulations, and so on, that you often start from. In philosophy, you ask the more basic questions. Where did these things come from? What do they mean? What are they about? And are they justified on some sort of, if they're moving us to action, on some sort of normative ground? Mm -hmm. And in that sense, there is no uh, starting point that's final. As Plato would said, uh, you can either move down from a so-called beginning or you can move up to a more basic starting point for which there is no further question to be asked. So what I try to get my students to do is I try to have them move up to a more basic starting point 
for it where it becomes no more questions yet to ask. And if they develop further questions, then of course they'll continue in that process. And that's good. That's part of the dialectic I was just speaking of. But it means that they are indeed open up to not just being confined to a particular paradigm, but to being open up to all the host of possibilities that knowledge might present when actually investigated fully and thoroughly. Now, having said that, it may be the case that having done some of that for some period of time in a reflective way, that come, someone comes to the conclusion that at least tentatively, certain ideas seem more accurate, more true, more right than others. And insofar as they have that, they might be pretty uh, firm in terms of thinking that this is what is the case, as I was saying to you in sort of a half-joking but half-serious way, you have the right to be wrong. <laughs> but it also is the case that you certainly can present back to me reasons why I am wrong and that I should think about and need to reflect upon because that's part of the whole process. But those reasons now would be at the next level of, gener of, of abstraction in which something that seemed to work within a up to a certain point now needs to be questioned for something higher that still is open to investigation. So again, philosophy does that because it's not restricted to some doctrine or dogma, dogma from a religion, doctrine from a law, or, or some other area, a kind of uh, paradigm. It can do it. Uh, let me give you a, a very obvious kind of example that might be of interest that doesn't involve either religion or law. Sure. In science, which we take to be pretty, pretty persuasive and certainly very, very helpful as a practical matter in terms of organizing, regulating, and our daily lives, there, there are certain assumptions that are not scientific. They're philosophical. For one thing, that there is an independent world, independent of us, and two, that we can know that world. The, neither of those questions, the first one, the metaphysical question that there's a world independent of us, and two, that we can know it, uh, the epistemological question, are scientific. Science presupposes the truth that there is this world, and two, that we can know it, and that it's governed by certain laws which we can investigate. And then within science, having made those assumptions, it can look for how we go about finding those laws, determining what they are, and how what those lead to us. But the underlining metaphysical assumptions and epistemological ones are still philosophical and behind even science. So even when we talk about something as rig rigorous as science, uh, we, there are questions to be had and to ask. And we see this come up all the time because sometimes our paradigms in science may be too narrow. Example, uh, for a long time, male and female seem to be a very good paradigm to explain a lot of what biology, biology people had and physiology people had. But as we investigate this further, we realize that that's not so present anymore. At the, even at the, I was talking to a biologist uh, about a week ago, that even at the genetic level, where you have XY and uh, XX chromosomes, they not always express themselves as male and female. They sometimes express themselves differently than that, not let alone XYX or YXY. And so even at the genetic level where we might think that that kind of binary works most definitely, it doesn't hold up all the time and thereby needs to be investigated for its truth and what exactly and when it exactly it does hold up. And then when we go beyond the, the uh, genetic level to talk about physiology, uh, which also may express different things, and then even more so psychology, 
it becomes necessary to really ask to what extent are we allowing our concepts to control us and to what extent are we investigating our concepts to see how much they are of value to us. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I wholeheartedly agree with the need to investigate further. I mean, anybody with any sense would, would agree with that. Even no matter where you come down on the side of the transgender or gender fluid debate at the moment, there's no reason to limit inquiry. So I've brought you up at least three occasions on the show and pitched your class. I've said that it's a crime that we're not required to take jurisprudence. I think it's a crime that we take con law before we have the opportunity to take jurisprudence. And that it's it's really essential to understanding the part of the tradition that you're supposedly going to engage in as a lawyer. And I, I guess this goes to with your example of um, science, that it still has these presuppositions and a priori assumptions that make it function. And I think the world of law is similar and that there's some really important things that you have to you have to learn. So why don't you tell make your pitch for your class and explain to people why you think jurisprudence is so essential to a legal education. I mean, I, I, I understand you developed the class here. and I think you're one of the few faculty members who teach it. Well, thank you. Uh, actually, I developed it elsewhere uh, at Chicago Kent College of Law before I came to Loyola uh, on, the, on the law side, although I was at Loyola in the philosophy side. Um, let me answer your question this way. It's not so much timing of whether you take jurisprudence before or after uh, constitutional law. Uh, I can see reasons for doing either of those. Um, but I think this is the key issue. Law school trains you, especially in the first year, and necessarily so, to look narrowly and focus in logically on a very key issue that's central to what you're arguing and not get distracted as so often when we write more fluidly and openly in undergraduate classes, for example, uh, we take different directions and that's of interest. Here, because we're trying to explain to a court why a certain principle or a certain rule is or is not correct in a certain context, we have to be very narrow and very clear about exactly what we're, what we're doing and how we're getting there. That's a very important training for lawyers, and it should continue, of course. But at the same time, it's not the finish. Like I said with Plato, you might get to a starting point and come down from there like you do in axioms of mathematics, but there's still a further question, why these axioms versus some other ones? And this becomes evident when we see that constitutional principles, for example, might conflict with one another. And it's not a simple matter of appealing to some canon of interpretation as to which way we go, but there's a deeper question of why we should go that way. My examples in the transgendered area I just spoke of would fit this example in the science area. And so what I think is important about a jurisprudence class is after you've learned to be narrow and to be focused, you now open your mind to the possibility that there will be times when you need to be broader, when you need to consider something from outside that's not in that narrow structure in order to get at a deeper understanding and maybe a point that otherwise would be lost. For example, uh, when people speak about in the law nature, judges and others, they are probably appealing to a background ideology or religious tradition or philosophy of natural law without even necessarily realizing they're doing it, but that's creating the kind of normative structure from which they're 
per, their perception or conception of what you're doing is taking form. Mm -hmm. And to recognize that and be able to identify it and say why that is good or bad or why there's alternative views to that is a very helpful tool that a lawyer could have that other lawyers won't have. And so having this tool of being able to expand beyond the limits, uh, we saw that with the Brandeis brief in the case of empirical science, uh, but being able to do it conceptually as well as with the jurisprudence class, I think can provide a great benefit to lawyers who now know how to speak narrowly, but also know when to question if that's getting them enough, and maybe they need to redirect the court's attention to something in the background that may not have been readily perceived. Yeah, it's a great answer. I mean, uh, unfortunately, I only did a small taste of it in your class. I mean, you do a great job covering it, but there's so much more that you don't even get to touch on. And I, I think the example that you gave of the naturalistic fallacy is perfect, that uh, observing the world around you and making a normative statement out of it it's a huge problem and we need to question everything and that there are all these ideas that have been explored by minds greater than my own that are lurking in the background of these opinions and and you know uh, Loyola personally has a great pipeline to do uh, judicial positions someday you could be a judge deciding cases without ever having taken a jurisprudence class presumably so um, I think that that's really important any closing thoughts well let me just say to the the future lawyers in the audience that are listening to this, you have a chance to really improve the world because you will have power assigned to you by being a member of the bar and opportunities by way of your education to do things many other people can't do because they don't have that training. It is most important that you approach these things with a kind of seriousness, not just for your own well-being, but that's important too, but in terms of what contribution you can make to the betterment of mankind, humankind, the world as a whole. And I think that opening your mind and asking yourself questions, why do I think this? Why do courts hold this? Is this really right? Is there something assumed? Is there something that needs to be challenged or asked? even when you confront simple cases that may seem to be obvious, is important. And certainly in those areas where you will occasionally, not often, but occasionally confront a more complex area that might involve some real investigation. You have the chance to make a better world. It's you as a person, the autonomous person, that can set the direction for your own life and for what comes after. And I'm hoping that every one of you will be an outstanding future lawyer who makes the world just a little bit better from where they begin from by virtue of their presence. That's a great note to finish on. Professor Samar, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Bum, ba -dum, bum, bum, ba -dum. Ba -dum.